Who knew that on that day, nearly 500 years ago, on October 31st in 1517, that those notes that the young man, Martin Luther, nailed to the wall, the door actually of the Wittenberg church, who knew that that would be one of the most important events in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul? There's very little in church history to rival the amazing reformation that happened because Martin Luther did that. And yet we shouldn't think that Luther had an easy time. In many ways, nailing those those theses to the wall, to the door, cost him virtually everything. It cost him his his freedom because he had to be hidden out to, for because of so many threats on his life, many of which came from, at that time, the Roman Catholic Church. He had to be hidden away from those who wanted to harm him, who wanted to torture him, who wanted to tell him that these things that he was talking about simply weren't true. And yet Luther, when he was called before those who were going to make him say that what he had written wasn't true, he said that he stood only upon the Word of God. That was the only thing that he could do. That was his only hope. Today, we'll read from a book of hope. The book of Revelation, you see, is not written to to tell us about all kinds of things in the future, like a, 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 you know, a $5 a minute phone psychic. That's not what the book of Revelation is about. It's about giving those who first read it hope, and it's about giving those who continue to read it hope. Because being a Christian at the end of the first century was a very dangerous thing. Just as Martin Luther hid away so that he wouldn't be tortured or killed, many of those who were Christians in the first century faced torture and death. It was not an easy thing to be a Christian when you knew that your Christianity might cause you to be crucified. Your Christianity might cause you to be burned alive as a human torch. Your Christianity might cause you to be tortured in a variety of ways. And yet John who himself has been exiled to an island, John writes this book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, to remind us that even in the deepest, darkest times, there is hope. And so we'll read this text today at the end of Revelation chapter 21. Last week, we looked at the beginning of Revelation 21, and today we'll look at the end of Revelation 21, and we'll ask ourselves a really interesting question, and that is, what is it that is not in heaven? I mean, obviously, there are lots of things, and we talked about many of them last week from the beginning of the chapter that will be in heaven, but John ends this chapter by telling us certain things that won't be in heaven. And so, if you have your scriptures with you, we'll turn to the Next to the last chapter, Revelation chapter 21, and we'll look at verse 22 and read through the end of the chapter. This is what John says to us about certain things that won't be in heaven. He says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, 
and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So today we ask that very simple question, what will not be in heaven? And the text here tells us four quick things that the text tells us will not be in heaven. First of all, there will be no temple. That's a shocking thing. It's a shocking thing because it's almost impossible for us to realize just how important the temple was to a person who, a Jewish person who lived in the time of Jesus. The temple was not just the center of all Jewish religious activities, although it was that. When you really wanted to get involved in a particular religious activity, you went to one place and that was the temple. But the temple was also the center of all legal activities. And so it's as if the government and the church and everything that is important is symbolized in that one building, the temple. That's the reason that, remember in Mark 13 and Matthew 24, when Jesus says to his disciples, he says, listen, there's coming a day when this temple is going to be destroyed. The disciples ask him a question. They say to him, well, when is the end of the world? They say that because they can't conceive of a time when the temple will cease to exist and the world will continue on. And that's the reason for much of the sort of difficulty that we have with Matthew 24. It's because Jesus is answering two questions, both when will the temple be destroyed and when will the world end? And John almost seems almost to be expecting a temple by the grammar that he uses here. He looks, but he sees no temple. And it's incredible to those who read this, those Jewish people, to think that in the the great heaven of God, there will be no temple. One of the most important of the Dead Sea Scrolls is is a scroll called the Temple Scroll. You may have seen it if you've ever been to the Shrine of the Book or if you've ever seen the traveling exhibit of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a scroll that essentially says those who lived out in the desert who were copying these scrolls, they were the true Israel. And those who lived in Jerusalem and those who lived in other parts of Israel were not. And one day God was going to come and he was going to save them as the true Israel and there was going to be a new temple built. And so the temple scroll lays out this gigantic design for a new temple. And yet it's not there. And you'll You'll know if you've ever been to Israel or if you read about such things, you'll know that there are people today who go around planning for themselves where the new temple will be built, what they call the third temple. And yet we have to come to realize that the third temple has already come to Israel and it was in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And he's the one who said, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days I will raise it back up. There's no, no need for another temple in heaven because the lamb is already there. And that's the amazing thing. It's hard for us to even conceive of what it would mean to have all of our religious beliefs and all of our cultural beliefs and all of our political beliefs attached to one single building. You remember the movie Independence Day, probably, and you remember the, the, the previews from the movie showed the aliens destroying the White House. When you saw aliens destroying the White House, you know you had to go see that film. And when you saw aliens destroying the White House, there was almost this visceral reaction. It's as if they are destroying the essence of the United States. But think about if if the White House were not just our political center, but it was also our cultural center, and it was also where we went to church when we really, really needed to go there. If all of that was contained in one building, that would be what the temple was like to a second temple person. And yet, John tells us it won't be there. It won't be there because we have the greatest temple in the world, and that is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need a church to pay for our sins. It's one of the things that Martin Luther was so insistent about, that we don't need a church to pay for our sins because we already have the greatest high priest, Jesus Christ, who has already paid for our sins. We don't need another temple in heaven because we have the greatest temple of all in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the reason that John, when he tells us his vision of this heaven, he tells us that there's no temple there. But then he tells us a second thing, and you'll see this in the 23rd verse, he says there's no sun or moon there. Obviously, we today get our light from basically the sun and the moon. Now, we have electric lights, but in general, our light comes from the sun and the moon. And yet, John, interestingly enough, tells us that when he sees this vision of heaven, there's no sun and there's no moon. You may have, if you happen to be interested in the sort of whacked side of Christianity, as I am, you, you may have heard some people uh, making these predictions this year about the blood moon. You heard that, some of you at least? that the blood moon is going to happen and that's going to cause prophecy to kick in and all the world's going to end and we'll know that because of, of the blood moon. They're reading, of course, the apocalyptic literature that tells us the moon shall turn into blood and failing to recognize that this apocalyptic literature would not have been, by anyone who read it in the first century, would not have been taken literally. They knew that it was a symbol. And that is the, the problem, you see. We have to read the book of Revelation in the way and, and to the people to whom it was written. It was not written to sort of give us a blueprint of everything that's going to happen in the world, and, and that is obvious. It was written to promise us that the reason there's no sun or moon in heaven is because we have the true source of light. You remember that Jesus, when he is in the temple, in the book of John, he makes that incredible statement, I am the light of the world. He, he says, I'm the one 
who really lights up the whole world. That's a shocking statement. It would have been even more shocking to those who heard it in the first century. And yet we realize that Jesus is really the light of the world. The Messiah was expected to be a light, not just among the Jewish people, but a light among the Gentiles. He's the reason that there's no need for a sun and moon because there's no darkness when you have the God of the universe there. There's no temple There's no sun and moon. Yet one of the most interesting things that we see, a third thing that will not be there, is in verse 25, there there aren't any locks there. Locks like lock on a door. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't exactly have the same kind of locks that we had, but cities were built in order to defend themselves with a wall around them. And if it were a smaller city, usually it would have two gates And those gates would be opened up during the day to let people come in and let people go out and go and tend to their farming outside of the city or do whatever they needed to outside of the city. And yet, interestingly, interestingly, John says to us, this is a city in which the gates will never be shut. What he's saying to us is, this is a city in which no one will need to lock their doors. You've heard an old saying, I imagine, I've come to realize that a lot of the things that my mother told me were old sayings, she kind of made them up, but she used to say to me, there's an old saying, trust God, but lock your door. And maybe you've heard of that. But in heaven, we can trust God and we won't have to lock our door. Because we will be a community of people who can trust each other. We will be a community of people who can come together and who can realize that they're, all of us, are people of God. That's the reason, you see, that one of the the central ideas of the Reformation was the visible and the invisible church. The visible church is everybody who's gathered together in a church anywhere in the world today. They're the visible church. But the invisible church are those who are real, true believers. They're invisible because I can't tell by looking at you whether you're a real, true believer or not. I can say that when I was at seminary in Chicago, I had stuff stolen from me. And I doubt that was by a member of the invisible church. You would think that a minister would realize that if he stole stuff and used those books to prepare for a sermon on the Ten Commandments, there might be some problems there. But I remember to this day, the PhD students had these wooden study carols in which we could put books and leave our stuff. And I had a a small radio there that I used to listen to the uh, Cub games. Uh, Don't even say it. And (laughs) one day, and I came down the stairs one day, went to my carol, and my radio had been stolen. I went up to the desk and I said, hey, my radio got stolen. And they said, well, it happens all the time. I said, what? They said, yeah, there's a lot of stuff stolen from here. A seminary library and stuff gets stolen all the time. Yeah, we have about 100 books stolen every year. What? It's 
crazy to think that in a seminary library where people are preparing for the ministry, books would be stolen. And yet that just reminds us that we live in a broken world. We live in a world where the community in which we dwell is imperfect. We live in a world where you have to lock your door. Virtually none of us, I think, has ever lived in a, door, in a house where there weren't any locks on the doors. You might remember that I lived in a house for a few days where there was no door because of an accident, but I didn't enjoy it, I can tell you that. And the amazing thing, it's this shock, you see, that in heaven, the city will never have to close its gates. So what the ancient cities would do is open the gates in the daytime so that people could go in and out, in and out. But then when night came, they would close the gates so that they could defend themselves in case of an attack. Or if they saw an attack coming from a distance, they could close their gates. And to be in control of the gates of a city was to be in control of the city itself. And yet John tells us that there will never be a need to close the gates of this city because there is no night there. Because Jesus Christ is the King of this city, the King of this nation, and we who trust in Him are all members of His kingdom. We will be able to get together in those days and we will be a community in perfect peace where no one will want to steal. No one will want to do those things that are wrong. No one will want to do any of those things. It's an amazing thing that there will be no locked doors in heaven, and yet nothing will ever get stolen. There's one last thing that John tells us won't be there in heaven, and you'll see that in the 27th verse. He says to us, there will be no shame. Essentially what he tells us is that all those things that we are ashamed of in our life have no place in heaven. You see, nothing unclean, no one who does what is detestable or false. The word false there is a person who speaks false things. And it has been thought by some scholars that it was those who falsely said that they were Christians, but they really weren't. All of us today have things that we've done that we are ashamed of. I mean, you know, we dress up on Sunday and we look like we have it all together and we look like we're really in control of our lives, but you don't know. Me, you don't know. If you really knew me that well, you'd know that I don't have control of much of anything. And that the reason I have puppets is because I'm never really comfortable talking to anybody else. And I have these characters that live rent-free inside my mind, and they're the ones I'm most comfortable talking to. And the truth of the matter is that all of us are, are broken. All of us have serious problems. All of us have faced really serious trials in our life, and we have not done that well with most of them. All of us have these secrets that we hope no one ever finds out about. But in that city, it will all be gone. In that city, there will no longer be any secrets that we need to hide from anyone else. Martin Luther was a strange individual. I take some comfort in that. And he had one of the things that, that 
really bothered him was his own sin. He had an incredible sense of his own sin. I mean, he used to do a variety of things to sort of make payment for his own sin when he was a Roman Catholic monk. And he was living in a monastery. And you wonder, how much trouble can you get into in a monastery that you have to spend two hours a day trying to pay for your own sin? What? You're in a monastery. And yet that was the sort of weight of sin that Martin Luther felt. And he tells a story of one time when he was, he was sleeping, he woke up and he saw the evil one. Martin Luther saw the evil one a fair number of times, the devil. And we can laugh at that and say, well, it was because he was pre-modern, he didn't really know. No, he knew. And being one of the most important figures in church history, there is no doubt in my mind that the evil one did indeed do all that he could to try to stop Luther. Luther tells him waking up one night and he saw the evil one and the evil one was writing on the wall of his cell, the place where he lived. And the, the devil was writing down all of the sins that Martin Luther had committed. And so he started writing them down, theft and lust and all of these sins that Luther had committed and Luther began to be overwhelmed. He began to say, there's nothing that I can do to ever be right with God. I just don't know. There's nothing that I can do. Look at all of these sins that I've committed. Look at the terrible things that I've done. And Luther says, then an amazing thing happened. A hand, just a hand, showed up, but the hand had blood coming out of it from a hole there. And the hand used that blood to wipe away the writing of the devil, to wipe away all those things that Luther had done that he was ashamed of, to wipe away all those sinful deeds and thoughts that Luther had engaged in. They were gone, not because of anything that Luther had done, but only, only because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Scripture is very clear in telling us that the only reason that we can ever get to this heaven that John tells us about is because of Christ. One of the great metaphors in Matthew's Gospel is that whenever we sin, there's a sense in which we owe God money and we'll never be able to pay it. And our debt just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. And our income just just keeps getting lower and lower and we'll never be able to pay God what we owe. And yet Jesus Christ comes and he takes all of that debt and he wipes it out and he writes it's paid in full. That's the amazing point of the gospel. That when we stand forgiven in Jesus Christ... We will stand in heaven not having to be ashamed of the things that we have done, but knowing that Jesus Christ has taken all of those things and wiped them away just as certainly as that hand wiped away that writing on Martin Luther's wall. And one of the things that I want you to be absolutely sure of today, there are things that won't be in heaven. You see them. But I hope one of them is not you. 
I hope that today you can walk out of here and you can realize that though there will be no temple, no sun or moon, no gates or locks, no, no sin, that you are not one of the things that will be excluded from heaven. The only hope you have, the only hope that any of us have is to remember the God of the Reformation, the God who said our only hope is in grace and not in anything that we have done ourselves. It's a frightening thing to think that one day we will meet God, but it's a wonderful thing to think that one day God will see that our debt has been paid. There's a wonderful book, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, called Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. And it's the story of this man as he travels along the road to get to the celestial city, to get to heaven. And the end of the book has always fascinated me. It's fascinated me on a couple of levels. One is that many literary critics say, this is a brilliant piece of work, but Bunyan ruined it by not ending it when he should have. They don't know what they're talking about. But it's fascinating to me because of what happens there in that piece that Bunyan extends on. Christian is on his way to the celestial city and he's with his friend. He's with his friend, uh, hopeful. And they travel through all these very serious problems and giants and all kinds of things. And yet finally, they are able to see the celestial city and there's this river in between them and the celestial city. And it seems as if they'll never be able to get across the river and get into the city. And yet they walk out into the river and Hopeful tells his friend Christian, don't worry for the ground is solid. The ground upon which we stand. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ is solid. They go across. They finally get to the celestial city. There are these heavenly messengers that meet them there. And they say to them, by what right should you be led into the celestial city? And Christian and Hopeful take something out of their, their pocket. And it's the promise that Jesus Christ has already paid the way for them. And when that is seen, they're let right into the celestial city. But then there's another man who has sort of not come the way of Christian and hopeful. His name is Ignorance. And instead of going through the narrow gate, he climbed over the wall. When he gets to that river, instead of walking across on the solid ground, he, he finds someone in a boat called Vain Hope to take him across the river. And as he gets there to the celestial city and the heavenly messengers come down and they say to him, why should we let you into this celestial city? He reaches into his pocket and there is no promise there. And Christian in ignorance realize that he has, in climbing over the wall, he has bypassed the cross and he has no promise of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, he will not be let into the city. And the messengers take him and a, 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 a hole opens up and they throw him into it. And then Bunyan ends the book with these haunting words. He says, I saw that even at the gate of heaven, there is a way to hell. 
Let all of us, my brothers and sisters, on this day when we remember the Reformation, remember most of all that our only hope is in Jesus Christ. The only reason that we are not one of the ones to be excluded from heaven is because of what Christ has done for us. I saw that even at the gates of heaven, there is a way to hell. Be there, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us.